The reading is 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens and consulted mediums and spiritualists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He took the image he had made and put it in God's temple, of which God had said to David and to his son Solomon, In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites leave the land I have assigned to your ancestors, if only they will be careful to do everything that I commanded them concerning all the laws, decrees and regulations given through Moses. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Israel astray, so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose and bound him with bronze shekels and took him to Babylon. In his distress he sought the favour of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Afterwards, he rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David, west of the Gihon Spring in the valley, as far as the entrance of the Fish Gate and encircling the hill of Ophel. He also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities in Judah. He got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars he had built on the hill temple, Temple Hill and in Jerusalem, and he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. The people, however, continued to sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. The other events of Manasseh's reign, including his prayer to his God and the words the seers spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, are written in the annuals of the kings of Israel. His prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty, as well as all his sins and unfaithfulness, and the sites which he built high places, where he built high places and set up Asherah poles and idols before he humbled himself. All these are written in the records of the seers. Manasseh rested with his ancestors and was buried in his place, and Ammon his son succeeded him as king. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. Ammon worshipped and offered sacrifices to all the idols Manasseh had made. But unlike his father Manasseh, he did not humble himself before the Lord. Ammon increased his guilt. 
Ammon's officials conspired against him and assassinated him in his palace. Then the people of the land killed all who had plotted against Ammon, and they made Josiah his son king in his place. Thank you to Fiona for reading. Good evening, everyone. Uh, It's great to be with you this evening as we continue this series in 2 Chronicles. Please do keep your Bibles open at that passage, 2 Chronicles 33, about King Manasseh. And let me lead us in prayer as we seek to come before it now. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this evening, we pray by your spirit that you would give us what we do not have, that you would teach us what we do not know, and that you would make us what we are not yet. For Jesus' sake. Amen. What do you find most offensive about the Christian faith? What do you find most offensive about the Christian faith? My question presumes, of course, that Christianity is offensive, and that's certainly the presumption of our surrounding culture. If Christians feature in the newspaper headlines or on the BBC News website, it's almost always because their Christian faith has clashed in some way with the world around them, and the world around them has taken offence. That sense of outrage tends to cluster around the same kind of areas. Perhaps one of these was top of your list. Christianity's offensive views about sexuality, gender, when human life begins, assisted dying, other religions. I'm sure you could add plenty more. Here's my point. I think our passage this evening, and in fact the witness of the whole Bible, wants to say our culture is right to think that Christianity is offensive, but it's wrong about the root cause, the epicenter of that offense. The most offensive thing about Christianity, about the Christian faith, is the offense of God's grace. And if you don't think God's grace is offensive, well, 2 Chronicles 33 might give you reasons for a rethink. Let's dive in, shall we? Verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. So this chapter in Chronicles covers the reign of King Manasseh in the southern kingdom of Judah in the 7th century BC, and it's a pretty impressive reign by human standards. 55 years puts Manasseh pretty much at the top of the charts in terms of length of reign for Old Testament kings. Plus, he walks to the crease with his team in a strong position. The last batsman out was Hezekiah, his father, who had just contributed a deeply impressive knock. And in fact, as we begin this chapter, Chronicles is wanting us to draw a massive contrast between father and son. Faithful Hezekiah, who does what is right in the eyes of the Lord, and faithless Manasseh, who, verse 2, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. God has called his people to be a holy nation, set apart from the debauchery and the brutality of the other nations that surround them. And under Hezekiah, some of that distinctiveness had been restored. The dams, as it were, had been built up to stop the chaotic floodwaters from flowing into Judah. And the swamp had been drained and green shoots of growth had begun to peep out from the ground. But now Manasseh, the son deliberately, perhaps even gleefully, reverses all of that, breaks down the dams, lets the floodwaters come flooding right back in, drowns Israel's distinctiveness out with an ocean of what verse 2 calls detestable practices. 
Manasseh did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's the headline of this chapter. Manasseh was as bad as his father was good. And the first half of the chapter spells out for us in sad, even horrific detail, the evidence for that verdict, Manasseh's syllabus of errors. So verse 3, Manasseh rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. Manasseh, to put it in today's language, was a committed religious pluralist. Note his policy here isn't so much religious destruction as religious supplementation. Manasseh, in effect, says, let a a thousand flowers bloom. It's great we've got our religious traditions from God, but let's not ignore the wisdom we can find in the other, other religious traditions too. How much more respectful, what a great showcase for the values of diversity and inclusivity. It's great to have altars to God, but let's have altars to the other gods too, to the Baals and Asherahs, the gods of our friends in the neighbouring nations, the sun and the moon and the stars. And notice too, this isn't just new religious spaces for new religious gods. It's bringing the worship of these gods into God's temple. So verses four and five, he built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, my name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. Again, verse seven, Manasseh took the image he had made. So probably again, an Asherah pole and put it in God's temple. So religious pluralism leads effortlessly to religious syncretism, including the Baals and the Asherahs and the astral deities in the worshipping life of the temple itself. Not just welcoming the enemy through the gates, but ushering them into the pride of place right at the heart of Judah's worshipping life. There's a third turn in the screw, in fact, not just pluralism, not just syncretism on Manasseh's part, but personal devotion. Manasseh isn't a scheming politician pushing through some new religious policy just to earn himself a ratings boost, a point or two in the polls. Manasseh's doing this because he really believes in these new gods. This is an unfaithfulness in Manasseh's heart and not just in his head. So we're told, verse 3, Manasseh personally bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. Verse 6, he practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens, consulted mediums and spiritists. And then the lowest point of all, the ultimate proof of Manasseh's horrifically misplaced zeal. Verse 6 again, he sacrificed his children in the fire of the valley of Ben-Hinnom. This probably refers to the cult of the god Moloch, who was believed to be propitiated by having small children burnt alive. And the author of Chronicles wants to see this then, not just as in contrast to good father Hezekiah, but as a clear rejection of God's law, God's commandments, as clearly laid out in the Bible in the book of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy 4.19 forbids worshipping the starry hosts. Deuteronomy 7.5 condemns Asherah poles, says they should be destroyed rather than venerated. Deuteronomy 18.10, interestingly enough, is almost an exact description of Manasseh's actions. 
Deuteronomy 18.10 says, Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, casts spells, or who is a medium or a spiritist or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Those were the laws, those were the commands which, with which Manasseh would have been all too familiar and which he chose to ignore. And so the judgment of the chronicler, the judgment of God himself, sounds once more again in this chapter in verse 6, like a mournful death knell. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. Manasseh gives us a picture of the rejection of God's authority, God's call on our lives to be distinct and set apart. And the terrible consequences of that rejection in our minds and our hearts and our actions, like ripples gradually spreading out outwards on a lake. King Manasseh knew very well what God had commanded, and he chose to go the other way and to take the whole nation with him. As a rather chilling detail in verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. In other words, God showed mercy to Manasseh. It wasn't just God's past word back in Deuteronomy that confronted Manasseh. It was God's present word spoken to him directly, urging him in love to turn from this destructive course. But Manasseh pays no attention. And I say it's a chilling detail because I think it resonates with our experience. It might be, in fact, an important word for some of us here this evening. Deliberate sin in the Christian life will always be at heart a choosing not to hear. That's to say, when we do something we know is wrong, which is against God's good purposes for our lives, when we consciously choose that destructive path, we might come up with a hundred excuses or justifications to others, to ourselves. But at the root of it all, I think, is a decision not to hear God's words, not to hear his voice speaking to us, avoiding reading the Bible, avoiding coming to God in prayer, perhaps. Like Manasseh, it's a choosing not to hear. It's interesting that, that two kings in the equivalent passage on Manasseh adds that in Manasseh's reign, many of God's prophets were put to death so that their blood ran through the streets of Jerusalem. And I wonder if that too was about Manasseh muting the volume, turning down the volume on God's voice through them. So I guess it's a, a word of encouragement. If you're someone this evening who feels you're at a fork in the road in some way, choosing whether to go down a path that follows God or a path that you know is wrong. Encouragement to keep listening to God's voice. Don't be like Manasseh here. Don't ignore him. Don't turn down the volume. Don't harden your heart. Perhaps uh, considering, as, as Jane's been encouraging us this evening, to discuss this with someone else, with one another, a Christian friend, asking them to read the Bible with you if you find it hard to do it for yourself, asking them to pray with you if you're struggling to pray about something. And remember that God's voice for you, as for Manasseh here in verse 10, is meant to be one of mercy, one of love, calling us away from destruction and to follow him for flourishing and for joy. Well, it would be easy to caricature Manasseh as a way of creating a kind of comfortable distance 
between this account and our own hearts, our own lives this evening. And it's certainly true that the shape of Manasseh's wickedness is unlikely to be ours. I'm not sure many of us have Asherah poles with us smuggled under the pews, ready to put them in the choir stalls at the end of the service when no one's watching. But I think there is something relatable and something sad, something even pitiable in Manasseh's behavior, which stands as a warning to us. Here was someone whose heart was searching for answers but searching in all the wrong places. I wonder if Manasseh's relentless quest to find new religious beliefs, practices, worship experiences was driven by a gnawing desperation to gain meaning, to feel he could finally be in control of his life, casting his eyes around for any idol that seemed to promise security and identity and peace whether it's Baal worship or Asherah poles or divination or witchcraft or special incantations or sacrifices in the fire. And we do the same. We too have idols, those aspects of our home life, our career, our relationships, our finances, our leisure time, that we invest with a weight of meaning or dependence that they're never meant to bear. We make things into God substitutes. We say, that's the thing that will make me happy. That's the thing that will satisfy me. That's the thing without which life just wouldn't be worth living for me. That's the thing that will make me happy. That's the thing I finally need to feel at peace when the storm outside is raging. And crucially, all of those things at heart are about me. About me being in in control, me being at the center of my own life, about self-salvation, all achieved through my own efforts and by my own steam. And all of this, all this anxious striving, in other words, is the exact opposite of grace. That's why grace is the most offensive thing about Christianity, because grace says it's not about me saving myself, of doing enough to justify myself. It's about God in his love giving me an acceptance and a forgiveness that I could never merit or deserve. That's why grace unsettles our comforting economy of effort and reward and replaces it with pure gift. Grace takes me from the centre of my life and puts God there instead. And so grace is deeply offensive to our sense of pride, our sense of control, Manasseh doesn't want God's grace, and at heart neither do we. And that's why God, in love, decides to bring Manasseh to his senses, decides to bring this prodigal son home. The hinge of our chapter begins at verse 11. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. God now brings about disaster on great King Manasseh. He does so in order to save him. What a come down from the heady heights of power, captured by an enemy army, taken prisoner, bound and fettered, led through the streets like an animal, His every movement at the whim of whichever soldier held the chain connected to the hook that they had forced through his nose. And then taken far away, far from Jerusalem, far from his people, all the way to Babylon, 
and thrown into a prison. Jerome, an early church father, relates that while in prison, the Assyrians tortured Manasseh by putting him in a bronze vessel and filling it with water and boiling it so that he could feel a little, a little of what his children felt when he had sacrificed them in the fire to Moloch. And it's here, in shackles, far from home, destitute, abandoned, alone, half-starved, longing to fill his belly with the foods that the pigs ate, his crown gone, his kingdom devastated, his pride broken, his haughty spirit crushed. It's here and it's now that Manasseh recognises his true position and perhaps for the very first time in his life, he cries out to God in prayer. Verse 12, in his distress, he sought the favour of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. Manasseh cries out, you might say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, I've been a fool. I've gone after idols and falsehoods and things that don't save and forsaken you, the true and living God. I've chased after power and control, but now I see it's you who are sovereign over all the affairs of men. I've run far away from you, but in your love you've sought me. And so we get verse 13. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Manasseh humbled himself before God. He repented and believed and God forgave him and restored him back to his land and to his throne. It's an extraordinary picture of God's mercy and grace to this chief of sinners. Here is the worst king ever to reign over Judah, a king who turned to other gods, who desecrated the temple, who led his nation astray, who murdered the prophets, who sacrificed his children to a satanic deity. And yet even this man comes to God, humbled, broken and contrite in heart, confessing his wrongdoing, and God shows him mercy. God blots out his transgressions. God forgives his sins. God gives him a new life and brings him back home. This very Manasseh, this idolater and murderer, is now singing the new song before the throne of God in glory. There's the offence of grace. Grace means salvation is in God's hands and not mine. And that means God's grace can save people who I don't think deserve to be saved. That's how God works. God works in grace to redeem sinners who do not deserve it. I should say that's how God works throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. It's not a God of works in the Old Testament, God of grace in the New Testament. God works in the same way in mercy on every page. 2 Chronicles 33 is just 1 John 1 9 in action. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I wonder if we really believe that. Because if God's grace isn't offensive to us at some level, then we probably haven't fully understood it. However progressive or tolerant we are, perhaps precisely because we consider ourselves progressive and tolerant, there will be groups of people or individuals who we struggle to sympathise with, who we're angered by, 
who we'd not want to share a table or a pew with. We'll all naturally, secretly draw boundaries between the acceptable and the unacceptable persons, the enlightened and the unenlightened, the forgivable and the unforgivable. It's just that each of us will draw those boundaries in different places. And God wants us, God wants to subvert, to challenge, to rip up that entire way of thinking. Because those boundaries are our boundaries. We've mapped out the terrain. We've put them there. We know what's right. We're in control. Those boundaries are about us being God. And God wants to point us instead to his way of working, which is founded on grace and not on works. So that means if tonight you're someone who wouldn't call yourself a Christian, perhaps you think you're not a good enough person to be a Christian, you haven't done enough to please God, let me say gently, you're absolutely right, you haven't done enough to please God, no one in this building has, me included. But God saves by grace. And if he can save Manasseh when he humbled himself and came to God in repentance, then he can certainly save you and me. It's simply about recognising, like Manasseh, that all those idols we've been trusting in for control and security and peace can't save us, but that God can. And that we, like Manasseh, can know forgiveness and real and lasting fellowship with God forever. You see, Manasseh was trying to create his own imperfect form of religious inclusivity inclusivity and diversity. But it's God through his church who is working to bring about true inclusivity and true diversity. True inclusivity because absolutely anyone is welcome to come to God through the saving death of Jesus Christ, to repent and to believe and to know new life in him. Absolutely no one is beyond the pale, unforgivable or unworthy of God's love. And God is building true diversity in his church because God's in charge of calling people, not me. And so a church fellowship is precisely not a self-selected club of like-minded people, people just like me, but rather a group who would never otherwise be in the same room together were it not for the fact that each of our lives have been touched by the person of Christ and his love. And that so we've been united by a grace that is not ours, but comes from God. Well, I should wrap up. Let me just note in closing that Manasseh, restored to his kingdom, restored to his throne, shows in his actions the fruit of a restored relationship with God. Manasseh now acts with a renewed faithfulness, sets about righting some of the wrongs he'd earlier committed. He rebuilds Jerusalem's outer walls, protecting his people as God's appointed shepherd king. He cleanses the temple of idols. He gets rid of the baubles of the foreign gods. He restores the altar of the Lord. He reestablishes godly worship on a healthy footing. It's not a perfect picture, but it shows a change of heart. Our passage this evening then has given us a worked example of that most offensive aspect of the Christian faith, God's grace. The grace that seeks out a sinner and turns them around. The grace that forgives when all the world would not forgive. The grace that offers a new life and a fresh start. The grace that topples the idols from the throne of our heart 
and puts God there instead. Manasseh, for all the differences of time and place, of circumstance and detail, all the things that separate him and us, still, nonetheless, holds up a mirror to us. His life judges ours because deep down we're guilty of the same root of sinfulness that he was. And his life holds out hope for us because if God can save Manasseh, he can save anyone. If God can restore Manasseh, he can restore even me. Manasseh does, in fact, make one final appearance in the Bible. He crops up one last time, and it's in Matthew's Gospel in the genealogy of Jesus. Manasseh, the deeply flawed king, the exemplar of the forgiven sinner, was in the line of that true and perfect king, the one who was to come, whose blood would be poured out for the sins of Manasseh and for all who come to him in repentance and faith. Manasseh came to trust in God. His life was turned around, and yet he did not have as clear a revelation of the grace of God that we do. For we see Jesus, in whom God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us, but forgiving them freely through his death. As we come in a few moments' time to the Lord's Supper, we have a particular opportunity to take that forgiveness to ourselves personally, afresh, as we taste and see the tokens of Christ's passion, his body broken for you, his blood shed for you, that you might know eternal life. Forgiveness is possible and it can start now. And then, like Manasseh, we will know that the Lord is God. Amen.